Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day in a still rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times of COVID-19, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Paul Allen. Paul is the Chief Executive of the Royal Hospital of Neurodisability, based in Putney, London. Paul, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, You're welcome. Glad to be involved. Pleasure having you on the air with us, Paul. Now, the purpose of um, this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. So if we just first and foremost look at that word leader in isolation for a moment, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Well, to me... um the word leader implies that there are people who are following the leader. Uh, and, and to me, therefore, leadership is much, much more than uh, effective management. Uh, and to me, it's something about providing inspiration as a leader that means people will want to follow the, the, the direction and the, the vision, if you like, that the, the leader is setting for the future. I think that's an incredibly important point, actually, uh, Paul, because people forget that as leaders, we're not meant to be alone, are we? And it's just as much about the team of people around you as it is about yourself. And picking and choosing that team is an incredibly important part of leadership as well. I believe um, a great man called Nelson Mandela once said, surround yourself with people who are better than you. And that's some quite interesting advice, isn't it? Uh, Well, uh, critically important advice and uh, certainly... Uh, in my role at uh, the Royal Hospital for New Disability, uh, I'm certainly surrounded by both, if you like, a, a, a direct team of directors and a wider senior leadership team, all of whom uh, are absolutely excellent and exceptional in the way in which they work. Um, uh, and yeah, definitely, you know, to be a successful leader, you've got to put together uh, a team who themselves, you know, can be and will be very effective in, in, mm. in delivering or achieving whatever you're looking to achieve. And I think it's important from that perspective for a leader to not just have people management skills, but to be able to inspire, take people with them. And if we think about inspiration for a moment, Paul, especially in the context of the here and now with COVID-19 and the need to really navigate through this uncharted territory, have you been inspired by what you've seen in terms of the reaction from the population, especially with regards to the medical profession? Um medical profession and and especially if you like the clinical profession in my own hospital incredibly Mm. inspired by the way in which people have reacted and really risen um well above what you might call reasonable expectation at almost all all levels right from the front line to, to to clinical leaders and so on and so forth um, I mean, in terms of personal experience, of course, I can only really speak for, for my own hospital because uh, that's where I see how people respond. But I mean, it's clearly the case in the nation at large that uh, that there's been you know, an extraordinary response to this crisis by, by not not just uh, people in clinical and medical professions, but of course, people in many, many vital uh, support functions as well. Um, very important to remember that uh, uh, hospitals are not just... Uh, run and worked in by, by, by clinical people, but by uh, domestics and cleaners and, and uh, porters and support staff and so on and so forth. They've all been fantastic. Mm. And 
obviously, of course, you're free to agree with me, um, disagree with me rather here, uh, Paul. But um, I think that setbacks are, especially such as this, are important as learning curves, especially when we think of developing as employees as well as developing as leaders. And this is one of the biggest collective setbacks of our time isn't it and even though it has been an incredibly um, tragic and an incredibly difficult period there will be some positives to take from this and we're beginning to see that aren't we in the sense that from a leadership perspective it's crisis management and it's really developing us having been thrust out of our comfort zones it's forcing the hand of business and organizations to innovate and prepare for the future this new normal that we can expect and it's really also captured a real sense of spirit, hasn't it? And also brought us much closer together. Yes. I mean, in a way to call it a setback is of course to rather underplay it. I mean, mm. you know, in my something like 40, 40 year career, you know, one, one can sort of plot peaks and troughs and things that go well and things that don't go quite so well. And in a way, the COVID crisis is completely off the scale in that sense. You know, it's a, it's a once in a, a 100 year event, and it means everybody who's dealing with it is dealing with something that they've never experienced before. Um, but of course, out of that, as you quite rightly say, come, comes a little of learning. Um, in a way, well, one, I think there is an analogy, not that I've experienced, to, to wartime, where, where uh, out of war sometimes comes technological change. You know, the aviation industry sort of came out of the Second World War. Um, uh, events like getting the man on the moon. I mean, uh, there are other things that come out of that. And I'm sure there's going to be new and different ways of working. Um, some of the things that we've had to do, maybe we think temporarily to deal with the crisis, might, might make us rethink how we work uh, in the long term. And I think also, you know, I'd like to think that uh, individuals are, uh, are going to discover, um, albeit in, in the face of adversity, um, a whole raft of sort of inner strength and and uh, almost finding they've got uh, abilities um, to write, to rise to the challenge that they didn't even necessarily know they had as as individuals. Um, mm. Has that been the case for yourself as well, Paul? Have you learnt a lot about yourself and the people around you during this time? Well, um, I think the interesting thing for me is that uh, I have almost the whole time been working from home. And I think I've learned that being able to work from home, one can do it more effectively than I'd initially thought would be the case. Um, a lot of that is because of the technology we have. Uh, and you know, People mm. have been talking about Zoom and we've been using Zoom. And if you sort of wind back a few years where maybe we didn't have effective video conferencing, I think it would have been uh, much more difficult. But I think also in the Royal Hospital here, um, it's shown the benefit of the fact that we've built up, by and large, a, a well-developed, mature and experienced team over the last few years. So we all know each other very well. And, th- and therefore, when it comes to holding meetings and making decisions uh, uh, at a video conference, um, it's, it's I think, really, really easy for us to interact in that way and, and make decisions. And, and I think it might be more difficult, we would be more difficult, if one was in a situation where one had a lot of new people on the team, new employees, where you didn't, you hadn't already built up those sort of, those social interactions and weren't able to read the signals. Um, so, yes, I mean, in a way, before the crisis, I, I probably um, was a bit sceptical about the, the benefits of working from home um, or, or the effectiveness. But actually, I think it's been very effective indeed in many respects. 
Um, having said that, one has to recognize, and, and I'm sure this applies to many organizations, certainly in our organization, our hospital, um, during the crisis, we've almost split into two groups in terms of how we've experienced the crisis. Those who've experienced it here in the hospital because they've, they're in the front line, they've come to work every day just as, just as normal, um, and those who have experienced it from home. And those are two very different experiences of the crisis, I think. Mm, I would agree with that uh, for sure. And um, I think it's staggering, isn't it, how the impact of technology has allowed us to maintain um, leadership from a distance even because we've taken I think that human contact and that common space for granted in uh, recent years haven't we and uh, now that we're without that we're still uh, seemingly close together thanks to technology and um, it's been a real challenge for leaders as well during this time to keep the communication channels open and um, provide sort of reassurance of course be able to relay decisions yeah. and meetings and they've risen to the challenge incredibly well um, in my opinion. Yes, I'd agree with that. I mean, I mean, for me personally, in a way, it's made me more di- more disciplined. I mean, my way of working has always been to want to be with people, uh, which in the context of, work, of of leading the hospital means being out in the wards and meeting staff and so on and so forth, and a, a real importance of personal contact. And what the working from home crisis, if you like, has, has made me do is to be much more rigorous and disciplined about making sure that happens every day. Um, So, you know, I've been scheduling Zoom meetings with every board manager, with with my direct reports, and so on and so forth. It it, it might sound a statement to the obvious, but I think that the remote working has made it even more crystal clear that you have to keep that human contact going, albeit it's over Mm. a video screen rather than face-to-face. And certainly I think it's made me more disciplined in doing that than I necessarily was before. And interestingly, uh, Paul, I'm, I'm just um, fascinated to know this. Um, based upon all of the experience that you have at this point, if you could maybe go back sort of five, ten years and had the opportunity to change some aspects of your leadership style, would you make any changes or would you just embrace things as they've already been? Um, uh, yeah, I, I think the point I've just made about maybe introducing a, a little bit more, more, more rigor and, and discipline, I mean... I mean, we're all aware of discipline, different styles, and, and different styles have got their upsides and downsides. And, mm-hmm. and, and my style is, is, I think, very much the sort of the interpersonal style. And I think actually that's where the inspiration element comes from. If you see what I mean, if you, if you get to know people and, and, and you know they, they 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 don't see you as a chief executive sitting in in an ivory tower, but 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 somebody they can they can interact with and relate to, that, 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 then I think that that helps one. Uh, inspire in leadership, um, but I think that um, yeah, the crisis has definitely what well, it's meant. We've needed more rigor and discipline, and in a way, uh, and we've used this phrase here at the hospital, we've had to take more of a command and control approach than one that would necessarily take in in sort of uh, what I would call everyday leadership. You know, if you if you've got critical decisions to be made about, we're going to run out of. PPE in the next two hours if we don't do something about it. That's not a situation to sort of let's get out of flip charts and get out the post-it notes and work on an interactive solution. You know, decisions have to be made, directions have to be given. So um, I, I think it's probably brought home to me the the value of, of that style of leadership in conjunction with, if you like, the more collaborative, inspirational style. So it's very much proactivity, isn't it, as opposed to reactivity, I suppose. 
Well, well yes. Uh, another thing, and I think it does show, you know, if if you invest, and I'm not just talking about me here, but, but really uh, many of the leaders at different levels in this hospital, if you invest a lot of time in building up relationships and strength of leadership and strength of teams over a period of time, I mean, you know, over a few years, then that really yields a benefit when the chips are down <laughs> and the chips have been down. So if you haven't invested in that, I think it's then much more difficult to move into the sort of effective command and control style with which we've had to run the hospital over the last uh, few months. I can see exactly where you're coming from with that, Paul. And um, having touched on the past, I think it only serves that we focus on the future as well before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today. Um, what do you envision, Paul, that the next year holds for yourself and for the uh, the Royal Hospital of Neurodisability? And also, what do you hope to achieve as we hopefully move through this COVID-19 pandemic and emerge from it and also really begin to look to the long-term future? Well, it is, of course, a great question because the huge unknown is, yeah, how is this crisis going to unfold? Is there going to be a second wave of infection and so on and so forth? So, so you know, at a sort of a simple level, you know, the aspiration is that, um, you know, we will continue to protect our patients from infection as effectively as we have done over, over, over the last few weeks. Um, but, but in a longer-term sense, um my aspiration is that we very much get our strategy back on track. I mean, you know, we, we've had a, a very clear strategy for the future, for, for, for growth and for improving facilities and so on and so forth. And whilst to an extent that, of course, has been stalled or, or postponed to a degree by the crisis, but actually we're already now starting to work again on, on projects to um uh, increase some of the services we'll be able to provide for patients in the future and so on and so forth. So I'm already encouraged to see that, you know, part of our recovery plan is to get it back on track with our strategy. So in a year's time or so, you know, subject to where we are with COVID, because who knows, for example, whether we'll be able to meet in crowds again in, in a year's time or whatever. Mm. But but certainly I, I would want to see that both our growth and our improvement strategy are very much back on track. Let's certainly hope so. And um, given how informative it's been having you on the programme today, uh, Paul, I think it would be fantastic um, in uh, that time at some point to catch up and just see where um, RHN Hospital is uh, getting on uh, to that, uh, for sure, because it's, it's, it's incredibly important, isn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, we uh, we haven't spoken very much about our patients, but, but we, we look after patients who have had severe brain injuries and therefore severe mm. uh, disabilities. So it, it, it's one of the most vulnerable and really, if you like, patient groups with high needs that you could expect to come across. So, mm. so it is incredibly important work that we're doing here. Exactly right. And um, let's certainly hope that strategies uh, can resume them as normal um, even when we enter this new normal and I think it would also be extra fascinating to discuss what that new normal is looking like uh, when we do eventually catch up as well hopefully. Um, Paul, got to say it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme today. It's a shame we're just about out of time otherwise I'm sure we could discuss the topic all afternoon for sure um, <laughs> but I've really enjoyed it. It's been a real pleasure having you on uh, the programme with us. Thanks very much. Thank you. I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you. And most importantly, Paul, do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the meantime, because as everybody well knows, we're certainly not out of the woods yet. Indeed. And you. And you. 
That was Paul Allen speaking, the Chief Executive of the Royal Hospital of Neurodisability in London. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Jeff, and that's coming up next. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex, first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at, at football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He um, He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over the years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in Sir Alf Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters. 
who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. And what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, well, I do, I do understand clearly all walks of life. Leadership is at the top. is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved with my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, oh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge when it came to managing that England team what was his style like Jeff? Well one thing the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person um, mm. naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he it was quite clear who was the boss he was quite very very strict probably at a time maybe overly strict but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learnt over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly... Um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising they were not. 
there was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it, only a few games before. I was I was playing. And I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team. But uh, in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games, before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, and Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games. And I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay, he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot, and it's there, and people, players talk about it, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important, to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were a very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? 
And of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke and make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you in two. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a jersey or Channel Lines, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, in most stupid, irrelevant questions that absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can think, tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is- uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. But then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, laugh, if, you put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when see this happened when you must have realized that people teammates began looking at you for leadership um is that something that occurred to you or did you just realize that by by quick one way or the other people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration well possibly that's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now quite frankly that's a new a new question mm. does anybody look up to me I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, uh, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you 
as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well, he's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, well, the, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, That's a good they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know, uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that... So many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and, uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath, and there was nobody. And going back from an earlier earlier question for me, the, um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish. After '66, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. 
And I wouldn't and, when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding, and I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big absolutely. a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great and players. You- we have some great players, of course, but without the attitude <laughs> alongside that, going back to an earlier question. You, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. the word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly. Uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership, all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But if you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation, and I think that's you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.